0: And take advantage of limited walk-in hours. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Lisa Scottolini whose novel Eternal goes on sale March 23rd. Lisa, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Charlie. I appreciate it.
0: So I had Benjamin Taylor on my podcast last year talking about his friendship with Philip Roth. And you have a, a background with, with Roth as well. Tell us a little bit about your experience with him and, and how that sort of began your journey to this novel.
1: Right. I, and, and I was lucky enough. I still can't believe this really happened to me, but I was, I was at Penn in the 70s. That's how old I am. I, back in my college days, I was an English major. I'm old enough to be vaccinated. Yay. I, uh, <laughs> there's, there is an upside to being near death. Um, I was I was an English major, and Philip Roth was teaching at Penn. Now he was a big time writer, but he wasn't like you know like he became. And it was a year long seminar, only fifteen kids in the class, and I got to take it. I mean, you had to be picked, and it was just amazing. It was like imagine taking physics with Einstein. That's what it was like. But what's really interesting about it, I'm going to make clear is. There's no personal relationship. In fact, that's sort of what's interesting about it, that in a way, every week we read a different novel and he took it apart and made it, I learned a million things, all of which I'm happy to talk about today. And, but he was not close to us. We're, imagine 15 kids in class, he never, he told us to call him Mr. Roth. Every single other professor, you know, in the seventies, we call them, you know, Ellen, whatever. He was always a little distant, which I get. I mean, he was protective. He might've been a reserved guy. I can't tell you I know him at all. I don't know him at all. And I had a course with him for a year. Um, So, but I know what he taught me. And he's the one that he introduced us to, he liked to talk about behavior of people in extreme circumstances, which is an interesting way. And that would naturally bring you, Ridley, to the Holocaust. And he introduced us, Primo Levi's work and Primo Levi was an Italian chemist to an Italian Jew who was taken by the Nazis and sent to Auschwitz and survived it. But he was also and wrote the seminal memoir which we read among other things that we read Periodic Table and other things Levi wrote and I thought an Italian Jew and I'm Italian American no real religious affiliation I'm like what um why don't I know about this and and I started to learn about it and Roth really felt that Levy had been kind of, it was like, Italy really is the forgotten front. There is still not enough information about it. And I thought, I know over the past 40 years, I've just educated myself about the Italian Holocaust. And when I found out this sort of incredible thing that happened there in October, 1943, right in the center of Rome, I just said to myself, you got to write this book someday. I've written 33 novels. I've written like nine memoirs that are kind of humorous. And it's all this time, I feel like I've been practicing to write eternal. I mean, I'm just like all the writers who listen to you. I And you, maybe you feel this way too. I don't ever feel like I got this made. I feel like, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) You know, I write without an outline. So people say, do you know how it ends? I don't know how it ends. I don't know how it middles. I don't know how to write historical fiction. I don't know how to write thrillers. I just sit down and try to write a story and do all the things that I do, which we can talk about. And then somebody says, oh, that's what this is. And I go, okay, fine, amuse yourself. But that's not what I think. I think it's a story about three people growing up in Italy, in fascist Italy and how their life turns out and what they do.
0: So it is a, it's a story about three young friends growing up in fascist Italy. One of them's Jewish. Um, and you know I've, I've read lots of World War II fiction. Most of us has, but as you said, so much of it is kind of in the Churchill Hitler reign reign right, area, right. you know, and not as much in in Mussolini Italian fascism. Um, did you do you have an Italian background yourself? Is that part of what drew you to to set a, a novel in Rome?
1: I am Italian American, but what really drew me was the more I learned about how interesting it was, how different fascism was from Nazism, yeah. when yeah. I learned that. It wasn't that Mussolini copied Hitler. It was that Hitler copied Mussolini. Mussolini invented fascism. His was the first fascist party. And then I learned the kind of startling fact that we know that Rome is the center of the Vatican and Roman Catholicism. But then I learned that it is also home to the oldest continuously existing Jewish community in Western civilization. Well, that's mind blowing. You go, wait, what? How did I not know that and how interesting and also the very interesting fact that fascism when it started life was not anti-Semitic. In other words, it's not some Italian version of Nazism. It is its own animal. And so, for example, Jews were very assimilated in Italy. Italian, a Jew, there was a Jewish mayor of Rome. Italian Jews joined the fascist party the same percentages as Gentiles. So now you go, what do you do with that information? Well, that's a, a kind of a Philip to this story. And so then you go, well, how does that make it different? Well, what it means is that when fascism, fi- when Mussolini finally joins with uh, Hitler and decides to become anti-Semitic and enact anti-Semitic laws, that it is a double betrayal of the okay. Jews who were part of the fabric of culture there. And those laws as detailed in the book um, well, we don't have to go into it if you don't want, but you know, basically break down, it's death by a thousand cuts. Take away your property, your possessions, your profession, your membership in the fascist party, and your citizenship if you're Jewish. So that really what eternal gets stripped down to is the timeless kind of question of identity. Who are you if you're not Jewish? Yeah. Who are you if you're not Italian? Or if you're not an Eagles fan, or if you're not a Democrat, all of these labels that we apply... What is your identity? How does it change over time and with the times in which you live? That's this book.
0: Now, the times in which this book is set are primarily the 1930s and 40s, but you begin and end with a framing device um, that's set in 1957, and it does this very interesting thing for the reader, I feel like. It it reminds the reader that we're reading a retrospective narrative, and yet the way you tell it, it feels very immediate at the time that that we're living through it. Why did, Why did you want to have that tension in telling your story.
1: Well, thank you for that. And that, that is true. And, and we're not giving any way it's in the first sentence. Yeah. You know, Elizabetha in the beginning, she's sort of the main character is, I forget, it's in like the 40s or 50s, I guess. She's going to look back. This is the day on which she's going to tell her son who, her, who his father is. Right. That's the framing device. And I did that because I thought this is really the story of a woman's life. And this is the stuff that happened to her because she grew up in those times. You know, we talk about how you don't know how it ends. I didn't know how it ends. So I put myself in her shoes in the 1930s and gave her two really great friends. Now look, anytime you're writing anything, Roth taught me this, but everybody knows this, who writes as you do too. You have to write something emotionally true. So you be her journey, you imagine yourself. For example, it sounds mundane and even maybe a little trivial, but it isn't to a woman. I tell the story when she gets her first bra, her experience. Now that's maybe that stands in for sexuality. Maybe it stands in for womanhood, for maturing, but I can tell you the experience she has is the one I had, which is that all the mean girls in the class come up to her and go, you need to wear a bra and she's mortified. And that's a bad way to start, you know, your sexual identity And, and with shame, you know? And so, you know, I wanted to explore her life just, and go through the steps of her life with her, you know, you can't say I'm gonna write in retrospect. You can't go and go to write about a character who's gonna know there's gonna be fascism that's gonna rise up and engulf this country. I think I had the sentence, cause I worked so hard on it, Something like she lives in a time when good becomes bad and bad becomes powerful and then lethal. We don't know that, that could be our time. And if you write it true and tell it true, together with all of the stories that happened that were true and not true. And I think the author makes clear what is true and what is not. Um, you arrive at some universal and yes, yay, eternal truth. That's my job. And I kind of feel lucky to have it.
0: Yeah. I love what you talked about, you know, the details about her buying her first bra. There's so many things about the relationships between these three characters, which although they are set in this particular Political backdrop are completely universal. There are things that you know, a, a first kiss. Um, you know, right. the change between friends who are children and friends who are adolescents. You know, right. and those changing right. intentions. Um, tell us, talk a little bit about that. About how these, how these characters really exist, could exist in, in almost any time.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, and the, and all of these. It's basically three families, and the story of those families. So you're also at times in the head of the uh, the, uh, the family, the parents. And part of it is, it sounds crazy, but you really have to, I believe that all writing, I gather a lot of your listeners are writers. I think that all writing feeds all writing. So for example, I write a humor column for, it's called Chickwit for the Sunday Inquirer. It's been in novel, it's been collected in memoir. I write them with my daughter. And I've done eight novels of that, eight eight volumes of that. Now. What I learned from that is A, get to the point, which is not something I'm always great at. B, get to the essence, another thing I'm not always great at. And I think it helps sharpen me. So I go, well, what is essentially like, what is Marco really about? Because a thriller, which is what I've written before, domestic thrillers, legal thrillers, you gotta get to the point. And that time that passes in the book is about three days. Well, here I'm writing a book that it's the Ventennio. It is the 20 years that Mussolini is in power. So I go to Hemingway and I go that great phrase, he has write drunk, edit sober. I don't write drunk. I don't do anything. I'm not dr- I'm not like that. But the spirit is and the mots: Get it all down, write a shitty first draft, then edit it. So what happens is I had a thousand page manuscript of this book. I sent it to my editor. <laughs> I was like, uh, what do we do? I kind of love every page. He's like, so do I, but we can't publish that. <laughs> he was right. So really distill it. So. What's the essence of Elisabetta? What is her struggle? What is her, how do, finding her voice, deciding who she loves. That's an aspect of identity. Yeah. What is she going to be when she's the head of household? Uh, I have a little of that experience. I've been a single mom my whole life. What is Marco's assen- essence? Well, he's magnetic. He has sprezzatura. Women love him. He's sexually magnetic. He's sexually confident. He's gorgeous. Yeah. But he has a secret. He's dis- Now, modern readers will know he's dyslexic. What are the effects of that? So, you have to research what it's like to be dyslexic in 1930s Rome. It's self interesting. All the research for this, I love doing. Well, yes, self esteem problems. Well, you know what happens when fascism comes along and says, What are the attractions of fascism? Well, ultranationalism is one. Marco, you're not dumb like the other kids. Yeah, you can't read at 17, but you are Roman, and being Roman is very special. We are the glory, we took over the whole world. Marco happens to live, I located his house on Tiber Island. It's the oldest bridge in Rome. It's the oldest bridge in the oldest city in Europe. Can you get a little self-esteem from that? I can. I think it's special to live in Philadelphia. How about that, you know? I think it's special to be an Eagles fan. Whatever your moniker is, whatever label you give yourself to make your self feel good. Oh, how about best-selling author? How about that? How about twice divorced? Not so good. Whatever those things are, Marco is attracted to, I am Roman and fascism tells him that's who you are. Sandro is really, really smart and happens to be, I wanted to sort of talk about the intelligentsia of Rome. He is a math genius. There is actually a guy named Tulio Levi-Shivita who because he was Jewish, never got the credit of Einstein. Einstein escaped. Levi-Shivita does not. And he was called the Einstein of Italy. So I kind of wanted to explore that. And he's a wonderful listening ear, but his problem is to break free of his parents who are loving and protective. Well, you know, that's a little bit my life. My parents were, they weren't as accomplished as Sandro's parents. My mother barely graduated high school, but they were, it was wonderful. I was loved unconditionally. At the same time, it was a nice little cocoon. I had to untie some apron strings and I didn't really completely they're both gone, I still haven't. And it's wonderful and also bad. And that's, so you have to mine your life for the all of the different lives you've lived, right? We contain multitudes. And put that out there for people. The humor columns taught me that if it doesn't make me cringe, it won't make you feel anything. I used to think if it doesn't make me cringe, it won't make you laugh. But when I write stuff, I have to tell you the stuff that's really true in my heart to make people connect with the novel. And it's all on the table in eternal. It is all on the damn field this time.
0: We we've talked a little bit about the way you researched um, the rise of fascism, and of course, a lot of those sorts of things—the the, the Jewish uh, laws suppressing Jewish people. Those things we can find in history books. Right. But this this book is so rich with just the details of ordinary life. Um, can you talk a little bit about how how you found out just what it was like? to be a person living in Rome in the 1930s.
1: That's very kind of you to say, and I really hope for that. I was obsessed. We're talking about forty years of research, so let's go there. <laughs> and also, read literature of the period. Read Elsa Morante. Read El, uh, Italo Cavino. You know, read Ignazio Silone. Read these things. See what they think about. What are they eating? I uh, subpoenaed under the Freedom of Information Act missives from the Vatican. I wanted to know what was the Vatican doing now. What were they doing when they saw this happening to the Jews? What 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 stuff I subpoenaed documents from the, uh, to get the information. What were the prices like? What was the price of an egg in the black market? What, because what's so interesting, you know, Italy is a lot about food and, you know, the great, I hate to paraphrase, paraphrase Dante, but you know, the wonderful idea is, you know, there's no greater sorrow than to look back in, in hard times when you were happy. There's an especial poignance to that. And I wanted that. So in the beginning of these novels I had to feel the day-to-dayness of Rome. So I went to Rome and I asked questions and in this particular event of October 1943 I went on the 75th anniversary. And I met people and I introduced myself to people and I I just accosted them. Now of course the victims were are gone, but their relatives were at these events. I said, tell me, what did they tell you? What was it like? And, it, you know, a lot of the reminiscences came from food. And so I said, let's go into the food, lean into that food, let's sweep the reader away to what it's great about being Italian. Like, I'm going to have pasta for lunch. I have pasta for lunch as often as I can. I love it. So what is it like when the wheat fields are bombed? And the Italians in Rome thought they would never be bombed because they thought, well, the Vatican's here, they'll never bomb the Vatican. Well, the Allies bombed it and the Nazis bombed it. Um, and, And... they thought we'll never starve. Well, the wheat fields were bombed. Italy was the weak link and the Nazis, and everybody correctly identified, the allies correctly identified, that if we bomb the crap out of Italy, they'll surrender and the Nazis will be weakened. And that's exactly what happened. So you learn a lot about the bombing campaign about Italy. You see the Italians starved, which is why they surrendered. Mussolini said, this is gonna be a cakewalk, just like Ethiopia, we'll win in no time. And that isn't what happened. So when you start to have starving Italians and then you start when the Nazis occupy Rome, you start to see that they weaponized food against the Jews of Rome. They intentionally starved the Jews of Rome. They let malnutrition and typhus and malaria spread. That's especially cruel in Italy. You can imagine what it's like to be an Italian Jew and to suffer this indignity. Somebody said to me, we had to water down the, you know, they get no food and what little tomato sauce they have to water down. Now, that's not the worst thing that can happen. But it's to them, it's right up there. It's right up there to starve
0: food is such an important part of this novel. I mean, Elisabetta works in a restaurant and we see her creativity through the way she deals with um, food shortages and, you know, Marco's family runs a, runs a bar that also serves food and we, we, I had this great moment reading this where in the, in the Jewish ghetto they are, they're eating the fried artichokes. And I was like, oh my gosh, I saw Stanley Tucci doing that on TV. Exactly. I couldn't believe this. A week series. ago. It's yeah.
1: incredible! <laughs> it's incredible. And thank you for saying, it. I just let my dog in. Uh, I It's so funny because I, that was a little seminal moment for me because I am lucky enough to have my thrillers published in Italy. And it was my Italian editor who said, let's go to the Jewish ghetto. Yeah. Uh, we'll have the artichokes. And I was like, this is really hallowed ground, guys. Like, why do we not understand that a war crime was committed here? Yeah. And so it's no accident. There's, you know, there's artichokes. choke some, it's my speaking to myself. Because I do think there's a lot of tourists who go to the ghetto and don't know what's happened. Italy is finally coming to recognize it, but I think it's still, it's still what not well known. It's certainly not, a, not well known, you know, outside the scholarship and in America, it was all... Eternal's full of that stuff and Roth was right it is a story that needs to be told it is
0: yeah. yeah early on in the novel we we start to see examples of what what the modern reader is going to view as fascist propaganda it may not necessarily be viewed at that as that by every character in the novel but that's what, right. that's the way we see it and one of the things that really struck home for me is this uh message that essentially women belong in the home Right, and, and yet I'm reading a novel where at the, at the moment, you know, Sandro's mother is a doctor, Elisabetta wants to be a writer. Right. Can you talk about the, the shift in the role of women in Italian society from, from before fascism and then into the fascist era?
1: Well, it's so interesting. and I'll, t- I'll just take you over for, your, we'll just explain to your readers. Because this is my whole shelf of Italian books. Like, I went crazy. And there's one on fascism's role for women. Because it was interesting. When I started writing, I said, well, it'd be interesting if, uh, first of all, there were very few women doctors, but there were, there were some. So I said, okay, I'll use that for Sandra's mother. But Elisabetta was trickier. And I said, this is why you get into problems, Catalina, because you don't plan. Because, like, you want her to be a journalist. And I remember letters to the editor and maybe people listening to this. I thought, God, I used to write a lot of letters to the editor as a person. I just did growing up. I was like, I want my voice to be heard. What is this urge to tell? What is this you want to say? Especially my family, where I was fairly listened to, but I had an urge to tell a story or get my two cents. She has that. And I said, well, that's a really bad idea for a character, Lisa, because in fascism, the journalists were getting fired. Like it doesn't happen in the beginning. She has her favorite journalist, but then they start to vanish and she's said, well, what's going on? And, but she's not very political per se. And then I go, well, then does that, I said, well, listen, you—you you, that's the hand you're dealt. That's who you decide you want your character to be, or that's who you got to write about now. And you're not going to get out of it. So that's her, that's her struggle. And then she has to morph into being a novelist. And that's much harder if you're insecure. As I know, I've written 33 novels and I never feel, you must know, I mean, I I feel like everybody has some insecurity and I like the insecure ones. You know, we're all going, oh Jesus, what did I get myself into? Uh, You know, how am I going to get out of this novel? How am I going to pay bill? How is this going to work? And, you know, there's a part in the book, which I thought was a little bit, um, well, so much of it took, I ended up buying Elizabetta's typewriter, which I also can show you because I wanted to connect to that a little. It's a, what did I do? It's over here in my office. It's an Olivetti, which was a very famous Italian anti-fascist family. Here it is. Can you see it?
0: And so my my, God. My wife has an Olivetti. Hers is a little bit newer than that, but they're fantastic typewriters.
1: They're fantastic typewriters. And this would have been Elizabetta's typewriter. And as you know, as a novelist, I wanted all that stuff. I wanted to hear it. I wanted to see it. I wanted to know if the keys stuck. They do. I also was, I'm glad I did it because it wasn't that expensive. It was only like 200 bucks, but look how the keys are white. I would not have known that. I would have gotten that wrong. And I don't want to get anything wrong. So I actually had a historian read this whole book just to say, did I get anything wrong? I had one street name wrong. So I'm really proud of that. But when I got that typewriter, I'm going to say to you, as corny as this sounds, that I felt very connected to her. And there's a scene when... It doesn't give anything away, but she's she's too insecure to write, and she doesn't really have a great mother figure. No one really encourages her. She's so on her own, and somebody. Uh, I like this character. She's sort of a grandmother kind of person, but not a nice one. And she says to her, you know, right now, because it always has to be specific to time. So Elizabeth is having her big struggles about insecurity, writing. How can I write? And this woman says to her, right now, because one of the one of the anti fascist laws. One of the fascist laws against Jews said that Jewish writers could no longer write. Jewish artists couldn't, if you were, if the map was made by a Jewish cartographer, you couldn't even use it anymore. And Nona is the character and she says to Elisabetta, right now our friends, our friends are being denied the right that you have freely and yet you deny it to yourself. How many people will dream your dreams for you Elisabetta? And I thought, That's something you could say to me at any point in my life or even as before. It took me five years to get published. I had enormous struggle, as everybody does. Tons of rejection. Favorite rejection letter from an agent in New York who said, "Uh, we don't have any time to take any agents, any clients, but if we did, we wouldn't take you. I know, nice. (laughs) Yeah. All right, I saw him many years later. I I didn't run him over, but I thought about it, um, which shows you how petty I am. But my point is that I think At some point you can dream your own dreams and then you have to stand on your feet and try it. And everybody feels insecure about that. And that never goes away. And that's what Elisabetta is her
0: struggle. Well, I'd love to talk a little bit more about this character you just mentioned because one of the things we've been talking about the three main characters in the book who are, are just so rich and so wonderful to spend time with. But there's a big cast of characters in this book um, some of whom are, are real historical people, and some of right. whom are the products of your imagination. And Nona is one of my favorites. Um, oh, thank just, you. She's just, okay. you know, yeah, she, she's not necessarily the sort of person you would like in, in if you knew her in real life, but you love her as a character. Can you can you talk a little bit about her and and what uh, influences in your life sort of helped create that character?
1: <laughs> so I'm embarrassed to admit so much. First of all, I love that character too, and that character is so much my, a lot, my own mother's soul. Like you really, you know, there's a lot of eternal in this book and people say, Oh, it's the eternal city, but really there's a lot. When you look at the landscape of Rome, you know, you see all these different time periods in the architecture existing all of a, the same place. And I think, and my, the, what I taught myself, I'm not sure that it's an insight, but what I taught myself was that that's true of people too. You know, people say I'm becoming my mother. No, you are your mother. All of you, like you do contain mold. They're all in you. I'm my daughter too. And I can channel my mother or what she would say at any time. So that when you start to think about things like way, you understand that time is completely conflated. You know, Faulkner saying the past isn't even past. He's right. But it's all here right now, all the time. And so are all the people. So Nona is so much my mother because my mother like adored, loved me. But it wasn't... Um, and she expressed it. Show me I love you. It wasn't one of these. She never tells me she loves me. She told me every five minutes. Like if I farted, she applauded. Like there was, I was, you know, my my father was the same way, but my mother did do a thing where she answered a question with a question a lot. And so you felt challenged a lot. Yeah. So, and I liked that about and Nona, you know, cause we don't want to have an over the top character. We want, to have a character that feels real. And I just said, go to that realness. You know, as a quick story about my mom, she, she was in hospice at my house and uh, you know what, you know what my mother's last words were? I will tell you. Um, she was, had her humor to the end and she couldn't speak. So she was right, her, she's right on a little grease board. And uh, she said, who needs it? And it was something she used to say a lot. Like if you were fussing, but who needs it? You don't need that. You're divorced. So why? He's giving you a hard time. Who needs it? Who needs it? What's her last word? Now you go, what? But also that's pretty friggin' profound.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so don't stress. Don't whatever, whatever she meant by that. I know what she meant in my soul. It would take me more words than you have to express it. But that spirit is in Nona. So she, Nona will watch out for this woman, for Elizabetta, but she will never, but you will not know that except by her actions.
0: Yeah and it's kind of great. You have this, um, I think, very difficult challenge in this book, with, which you succeed in, and that's why I want to talk about it, is trying to get a modern reader who, who knows about the horrors of fascism, who, who sees you know, the end coming um, to, to accept that kind and thoughtful and reasonable people, people that you want your reader to sympathize with, would ally themselves with Mussolini and and the fascists. Our our hindsight is 2020, 20, but of course right. Marcos and and some of the others don't have that. How do you how do you get readers to continue to sympathize with these characters even after they've made a decision that that the reader retrospectively sees as you know not a good decision?
1: Right. I, 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 I think the answer to that is you tell it true and you tell it from the beginning. Like, I think a little, it depends when you start the story. When I gave the thousand page manuscript to my editor, I actually started with Massimo's story. I started with that generation. Yeah. And then he, and my editor was right. He's like, no, no, I think you need to start with the uh, younger and then feather it in. And I did that. Uh, That wasn't easy, but I did that. And I'm happy that I did. I'm proud of the result. My editor was absolutely right. But if you take the reader on the journey, that is so great and also terrifying because that is our journey. In other words, none of us see it coming. What are the things you don't see coming? And a lot of it has to do with your powers of denial. You know, So you go, well, were the Italian Jews in denial? To me, no, they weren't because they thought they had the protections of their own country and the Vatican. In fact, they had neither. When you start to learn that Jews from Europe actually fled to Italy. yeah thinking they would be safe there. It wasn't such a dumb bet. They weren't naive. You can't blame them for what happened. And it becomes, I think the answer to your question is, you can, if you take your reader along the journey and so the character has to begin the story early, it happens before you know it. And then you're the frog in hot water. And and that's what's so scary about it because that's the stuff that happens in everyday life. Take it out of the political context at all. You're in a bad marriage you think you're happy at some point start things start to happen you go am i in a bad marriage i'm speaking to you from truth i go oh my god i think my marriage is in trouble you know what i think he's unhappy and you know who's unhappier i think i am i actually think i might need a divorce how does that happen i don't know it happens in bit by bit until you realize you're in the sauce and it's bubbling
0: and even even as they start to pass these um anti-semitic laws you know they they start out with, they're they're horrible, but they're, the beginning ones are sort of milder, and then they become more and more um, oppressive. And and uh, you see the same kind of same kind of thing uh, that the, the fascists themselves are using that same effect that you just mentioned.
1: That's exactly to sort of right. lull
0: people into a false sense of complacency as they gradually become more and more authoritarian.
1: That's exactly right. And you're so smart to point that out because a lot, if you look at the rhetoric of the day, you know, Muslim was talking about my Jews and I'll protect my Jews at the same time he was doing something else. Yeah. So you really have to look at that, at what was going on rather than what they were saying.
0: Now, not every character uh, in, the, in the book allies themselves with, with the fascist party. And you write with great sympathy and, and pain of the inner turmoil that, that characters experience when they're caught in these dilemmas that, that authoritarianism can create, when they're caught between loyalty to the state or loyalty against the state, and maybe the safety of their own family, um, can you talk about writing the emotion of that situation, especially with reference to, say, a character like Aldo? This is right. this is Marco's brother who sort of works for the resistance rather than joining the party.
1: Right, and and I well, thanks for saying that. I really that's the, that's the fun part of this this job our job. And it's also the hardest part because you got to go to where what kind of character Aldo is. Aldo's a religious character. I don't really have. I'm the ultimate outsider. I think it's kind of good to be that. You know, you Nick Carraway. They choose the outsider for a reason, right? We're always the storytellers. We don't know what the hell's going on. We're just trying to figure it, and we're good observers. And so he is. He is a religious person. His quandary is how do I square? You know, Mussolini came on and. He enacted the 10 decalogues, as I learned, which were for young fascists to learn, and they had to learn them. Um, and they were meant modeling the Ten Commandments. He wanted to replace God in a way in their in their ethos. And it's not, he won't ever say that's what's going on, but that's the niche, that's what the demand that he is meeting the supply of, right? And Aldo is religious. His mother is religious. His brother is a priest. Yeah. So that's his quandary. So I go, well, what's it like to be religious? The, I Believe me, I went to Italy. I sat in a bunch of churches. I have some meager Catholic education, but I don't identify as a Catholic at all. We were not raised that way. I had none of the sacraments you're supposed to have. I wasn't baptized. I'm going straight to hell. And so I just read about it, tried to imagine it and really just, you know, it's like everything. The great thing about reading is that I think it builds empathy. You know, Ann Beattie talks about the novels being a unified consciousness. That's really cool sounding, but I think it's more a soul. The more you read, the more you inhabit other people's souls and the more you write, the more you throw your own open. And the more you plummet. I have 65 years worth of things that happened. There's a lot of feelings. I remember them all, weirdly. Although I don't know where my phone is. I, you know, I got, I got, I, I got what it felt like to know you need a divorce. So you're plumbing all of that all the time. And I can imagine being religious and trying to understand what that, how you're torn by that. I am, I get torn all the time by all this stuff happening in my life. And that will happen in, to all of us at different times. And we will undergo what these characters undergo. And we will find the strength to endure And look at the pandemic. I mean, hopefully people listen to this from year now and go, well, I was really hell glad we're behind that. But what are we going through now? It's unprecedented for us, yet we are adapting. What you said earlier was so true. The Jews convinced themselves, everybody convinced themselves and they did what human beings do evolutionarily to survive, they adapted. Yeah. all right well, we don't need that okay well we'll do without that here we are okay well i can't go to the grocery store all right i'll order it oh i can't order in i'll wipe all the groceries down oh i gotta wear one mask fine i gotta wear two fine i'll do what it is to survive we're all little trying to get to this friggin' maze and we die at the end anyway are you cheered up yet you know but i mean <laughs> that's what happens in the book they they have to get through it somehow and they do
0: well i think there are these moments in the book where we do see these very powerful parallels to to our own lives, our own situations, whether it's politics or pandemic or, or, you know, any of the things, our our own personal relationships. One of the moments for me is when you're describing the crowd in the piazza listening to Mussolini and you, you write of them having faces contorted in an angry sort of joy. And I thought, wow, that's something I have seen in my own country in the last, you know, several years, faces in a crowd contorted in angry joy um can can you talk about how you sort of teased out a little bit of parallels between the way those crowds reacted to things we may have seen in the United States
1: right well I wrote this before that Mm -hmm. um so but what's interesting to me of course history enlightens us and we leave that to I'm going to tell it true now what I what I did there's so much that I did that's research but Oh, great research. So I watched Mussolini's speeches. Yeah. They were mostly in the daytime. That was one at night. And I was, you watch the, the footage from this and i am go, this is freaking scary. And then his reference isn't, let's go kill Jews. It's just a slight reference. And you're like, wait, did I hear that? Wait, did I hear that correctly? And, and I could picture being in that because I could look at the footage because I had visited Piazza Venezia because I had seen other footage of other rallies at Piazza Venezia. I had seen the throngs and the callbacks, all the words on this are Mussolini's actual speeches. And I just put myself there in that time. And that fury that is joyful and also a release and the bewilderment of being the person going, why am I scared to be here? What is going on? Am I making too much of it? Which is a lot of feeling women have all the time, you know, like, yeah. oh, I'm making a big thing out of this. It's not a big, yeah, get over it, honey. What me too is about that. Right? Anything's about that. Am I in denial? It's that's what gaslighting is a little bit. Now we have all these terms. Well, they didn't have it then. And I didn't have it writing this. I just went to the emotional truth of what it was like. And it's a great point that the Roth, you know, if you're telling it in an authentic way and you really take the time to experience it as I did as best I could, people will find the parallels. And that's true of any novel. You know, you write a thriller set in South Philly. If you describe South Philly in the terrain, you know it grounds the character and the character goes, oh, that's just like Cleveland. That's like the Flats or that's just like Boston. And in fact, it is because these are universal places. Human beings are universal and it's the human condition ultimately. How great is that? What a great job we have.
0: Let's talk just quickly about process and structure for just a minute. Eternal is told in chapters, and some of them, some are shorter, some of them are longer. Mm -hmm. In many cases, the action of one chapter leads directly into the action of the next chapter. But in some cases, there's a gap, sometimes a gap of a day, a week, a year, two years, right? How did you decide what periods, not only periods in history, but periods in the relationships between these three characters? you were gonna sort of skip over and and leave those gaps. And at what point you were gonna sort of have the continuous action.
1: Right, that's like such, that's the hardest thing. And as I said, I had this huge manuscript and what I kind of did was lay, I actually physically, and this, I'm glad you asked so people can understand what this is like, because they're probably gonna go through it. You know, you just lay it on the floor in, like I didn't have enough floor space. (laughs) And it was like, okay, do you need this day? And I have a little bit of I'm a confessional nature, as you can see. It's hard to shut me up, right? So I'm a little bit, and probably writers struggle with this. Do I tell that she went to the bathroom? Like I was, a, she, somebody's got to go to the bathroom. Like they got to eat. I'm always my mom too. When do they eat? When you know? So I'm a little bit want to tell all the interstices, and then I finally said, "Stop doing. You can't do that. It's too much." And Elmore Leonard has a great, great quote. quote you know, I leave out the parts that people skip. <laughs> and and I, I think about that, because it's true of all kind of writing. You know, he wrote crime, but he also wrote Westerns. He wrote, he was writing novels. He was writing. So, well, people are going to skip that part, Lisa. So even though you worked your ass off, go save it in your file of things that are beautiful, but are never going to see the light of day, applaud yourself because no one else will. And, uh, and I just said, be, re-, you know, edit sober. I secretly think of it and I'll, I hate to use profanity, but I use it all the time. But I said, channel your bitch. Like, there's a bitch in you and you have to go. What Roth taught us to look at these novels. When we read Flaubert. We looked at the sentence. He said, here's a great sentence. I'm going to tell you why this sentence is here. So first, I'm going to tell you why this sentence matters to the paragraph. I'm going to tell you, go, know, te- it down. Why does the paragraph matter? Why does the sentence in the paragraph matter? Why this verb? Why does it end? Why this period now? Like, get really granular really get granular with it. And that's the same task you're doing all the time as a writer you're, and so then you're doing the same thing with time. You go, do you need this chapter? You might not need this chapter. And I say to the sentences, I definitely do this when I do my thrillers. I say to myself, I say to the sentence, justify yourself. If I've said it before, because a lot of readers now binge read as they binge watch. I, I always binge read. I sit down and read the novel start to finish. My own and everyone else's. I hate it when people repeat things. I'm like, you told me that 10 pages ago. I listened. I paid attention. And so take it out. It's a trial lawyer's job. Take it out. You establish the fact, move on. And when you do that, you start to realize how much you lose and how much better the whole is, even though you're bleeding all over because you think you did such a good job or it mattered. It doesn't.
0: Well, um, I want to tell my listeners before we, before we wrap up that for me, uh, this novel hits, you know, to me, sort of the things I look for in a novel are: um, does, do I learn something? Did it make me cry? Did it make me laugh? Did it make me think I, this, this was four for four. And it's also one of those novels that I feel like sometimes there is a novel that's an important novel. And sometimes there's a novel that you enjoy reading. And for me, this was both. And so I, I, Oh my God. It was just, I couldn't, I really couldn't put it down. It, it was, I know I wasn't quite at one sitting, but it, but it was close. Well, now, we like to, thank we, like you to for
1: that.
0: we like to end um, every episode of Inside the Writer Studio with the same 10 questions. Uh, you can answer each of them in just a few words, but we'll hopefully they'll, they will uh, entertain us and be educational as well. So if you're ready, we'll begin. Go for it. What word do you love to work into your writing?
1: Darted. <laughs> I love when people dart around.
0: I love that verb. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing?
1: Adverbs. I really don't like adverbs.
0: Where's your favorite place to write?
1: Um, Right where I'm sitting in my office on the second floor of my house.
0: Where could you never write?
1: I can write anywhere.
0: Well, that's a good answer. (laughs) To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention?
1: Uh, Avoid contractions. I think there's an avoid contract. I love contract. I think people talk in contractions. Not yeah. in this book as much. They didn't then. But I'm a big contraction person.
0: What was what was the first book you remember reading?
1: Uh, Nancy Drew. Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, I say I say yes because my most recent novel is about children's series books, so it was inspired. I
1: know. Them. I can't wait to read it. I yeah. saw that.
0: <laughs> um, what are you reading now?
1: I am reading, what am I reading? Uh, I am, I am, re- I read a lot of historical fiction. I am reading a wonderful, uh, I, Lisa C., Island of the Sea Women. Yeah. yeah. Which is terrific. And I really love her.
0: What book would you like to have written?
1: Um, Elsa Morante History. Mm-hmm.
0: What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will?
1: Oh, I, I, I hope if there's, I'm, I'm not dead yet. So <laughs> yes. I'm going to, anything I want to write, I'm going to really try. That's, that's what I learned from this. I'm yep. I'm going to write a domestic thriller next and historical fiction after that. Yep. I'm, I, I'm on this life to live it.
0: Yeah, And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you?
1: What you said at the outset.
0: Oh, thank you. This has sure. been Inside the Writer Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett. And my guest today has been Lisa Scottolini whose novel Eternal is available March 23rd wherever books are sold. Lisa, thanks for joining us.
1: Charlie, that is the most thoughtful conversation I think I've had in my life. So thank you, truly, thank you for that.
0: Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina to find out more about bookmarks and all its programs visit www.bookmarksnc.org inside the writer's studio is proud to be affiliated with libro fm unlike other audiobook platforms libro fm supports your local independent bookstore whether you buy a single book or like me a monthly subscription you can link your account to your local store or to bookmarks to support literary community for a special 2 for 1 offer go to libro.fm and use the discount code writers if you've enjoyed Inside the Writer Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to former head of Special Investigation for National Geographic, Brian Christie, about his debut novel, In the Company of Killers. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.